All right, hey, I'd like to start with a word of prayer because I have something important to share with you. Uh, not that the other messages have not been important, but um, I would like to make sure that uh, the Lord is with us and speaking to us. Oh, sweet Jesus, I believe you have a blessing for us tonight. You want to remind us of our value by reminding us of what you've given to remind us of our value. So I pray that you'd speak with power, with conviction and clarity, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have an, it sounds like I'm on like a TV screen or something kind of funny. So uh, that's better. That's much better. Yeah. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right. Praise the Lord. So this evening we're going to talk about a gift that God has given humanity that will perpetually remind us of our value. Anyone interested in that? Anyone you know, struggle with a view of their own value and, and desire to hear something positive about their value? Well, in the book of Genesis chapter 1, beginning of verse 3, it says this, then God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. There was light. God spoke and it was so. And God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. He called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So throughout creation week, we see this theme that God speaks and it is so. But the interesting thing is when we get to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the narrative reads differently. Okay, that theme goes on throughout creation week, but in verse 7 of chapter 2, it changes. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. The King James says, man became a living soul. Notice there's a difference here. The way in which God creates man tells you something about the value that he places upon him. God could just as evilly have said, let there be Adam, and it was so. He could do that, right? But he doesn't. He stoops to the ground, he hand forms him, and then he breathes into his nostrils the very breath of life. Now there's intimacy and care implied in this language. Right? That, it, it's hard to get much more intimate than somebody's face being on top of your nostrils. Am I right in that? That's pretty close. I don't know about you. I'm an introvert, and I've got one of those me spaces, not my space. That's ancient. I mean me space. Like, I got my zone, right? And when you get that close into my zone, the bells start going off, and I get really uncomfortable, but I, ask, I act as if nothing's wrong, and I just pretend things are okay, and I freak out in the bathroom later, right? That's just kind of my, my, my internal processing. So, But his way of creating man communicates value, intimacy, and care directed towards the one that he has created. Do we see that? The way in which he's creating is different. And so it's in this context, a context of intimacy and value, that the next thing happens. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from his work which God had created and made. So after he's finished creating man in an intimate way, right, right after he finishes in this way, Adam and soon after his wife, he, gives, he rests from his labor, but he also gives rest to Adam and Eve. But what have they done to deserve or to need rest at this stage? They literally just got here. Right? That's like someone giving birth and then letting your kid go on vacation. Like, you just got here, right? But God seems to be doing something here. He's setting a precedent that in the very way in which God creates man, 
he immediately provides a gift to man to communicate something to him. And we'll get to that here in just a moment. God wants their lives to begin with a very important experience that communicates something that all of us long for at the very depths of our being. We're told this in Mark chapter 2 and verse 27. I love the New Living Translation of this particular verse. It says, Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Amen? So the Sabbath was not created as some like iPad parenting equivalent. Just go over here, keep yourself busy, leave me alone, daddy needs a break. That's not what God was doing here. Right? It was meant to meet the needs of people, not, uh, let me find something for them to do to get them off my back for a while. And I want you to listen to this. This is from a book uh, that talks about the seventh day and kind of gives a lot of the why behind Sabbath. It's this beautiful, it's a deep theological book, but this guy uses such poetic language. And this is what he says. It's from the book, The Lost Meaning of the Seventh Day by Dr. Sigve Tonstad. He's a physician and theologian. He says, by the act of hallowing the seventh day, God drives the stake of divine presence into the soil of human time. Isn't that beautiful poetic language? He's saying, in the very act of hallowing the seventh day, God inserts himself into human time, into the human experience. So in a very real sense here, God is bringing heaven to earth on the seventh day. Are you recognizing that? Are you seeing that? And this reminds me of John chapter 17 and verse 3, where Jesus says that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Well, based upon what Jesus is saying here, he seems to be implying that I don't have to wait until heaven to begin to enjoy the joys of eternal life, because I can know God and I can know Jesus Christ for myself right now. In fact, that experiential knowledge of Jesus and the Father is what we bring with us into heaven. You don't live in darkness and loneliness for three score and ten on this earth and then immediately and then magically, you know, finally engage in some form of intimacy with the Father once you get to heaven. He's saying, no, 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 you can have that right now. This is eternal life to truly know them, to have sweet fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. And that experience begins here. I don't have to wait until heaven to begin to enjoy the privilege of eternal life. I love that. So again, by the act of hallowing the seventh day, God drives the stake of divine presence into the soil of human time. He's inserting himself into human time. He's making himself available in the space of human time, which is starting to communicate this gift that he gives Adam and Eve as soon as they're created. You're here, and I want to establish a precedent of communicating your value, your loved, that you are precious in my sight, and I want to have quality time for the two of us to grow this relationship and to continue to foster this relationship throughout the rest of your life. This is what God intended. Tonstad continues, The reason why he refrains from any further activity on the seventh day is that he's found the object of his love and has no need for any further works. Who do you think that is? Us. He ceases working on the seventh day. He ceases his labors on the seventh day to enjoy what he's made. He's found the object of his love and has no need of any further works. God found what he was looking for when he made us. Doesn't that make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside? 
to realize that you are what he was looking for, and he has no need of any further works. So how does this make you feel about God? I need some verbal feedback this evening. How does that make you feel to hear this type of thing, that this is how God feels about you, and that he's that type of God? Special. Special. What else? Thankful. Thankful. Okay. Valuable. Valuable. Loved. Wanted. Wanted. Yes. Like his son. son. Yes. Anyone else? That there's a personal relationship available. Remember our first meeting together? The view of the Babylonians was that no one has his answer for you, O king, except for the gods whose dwelling is not with men. But the Sabbath teaches us that God is absolutely available to man. He's accessible. He's close at hand. He's intimately interested in what's going on in your life and what's on your heart and what's on your mind. He continues, Tonstad does. The seventh day signifies what is most essential to know about God. That's a strong statement. This is the most important thing to know about God. Well, what's that? God ceases from working in order to enjoy the company of the person that God has created. Suggesting that the seventh day speaks as much about the value of human beings to God as of God's valuation of human life. What lies in the foreground of the seventh day's first mention in the Bible is God's gift and not human obligation. Amen? It's not, you better do this or else, or you ought to, or you should. The immediate introduction of the Sabbath in the Bible is that I want you to know how much I want to be a part of your life. In fact, let's set aside the first full 24 hours of your experience, just us. Just you, just me. Let's grow our relationship. Let's connect over that. Again, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath isn't introduced in Scripture beginning in Exodus chapter 28, where God's telling us what to do in the Ten Commandments. By the way, that's not what the Ten Commandments are at all. In fact, the original language, it doesn't read in the imperative. They're ten promises, not ten forceful you shoulds. But the Sabbath commandment in Exodus 20 is a call to remember the Sabbath day. Well, which Sabbath day? The one that we just talked about, that communicates your value, that you were loved, that you were desired. That's what the Sabbath commandment really is, is to remember that you were loved, to remember that you were valuable, to remember that you were desired, and that your very Creator would love to hear from you and commune with you today. Amen? This is the true meaning of the Sabbath. So to remember the Sabbath is to remember that I love you, that I desire to have time with you, that I desire your company. That's what it means to remember the Sabbath. Tonstad closes. It is as if we hear God speaking, I am ceasing on the seventh day, not only that you may acknowledge and love me, but in order to make it known that I recognize and love you. Amen? Amen. Oh, I love that. Again, how does this make you feel when you hear that? That was, a, that was like a, a question that generally elicits opening your mouth and letting noise come out. Important, Important all right? I, I want you to think about this and verbalize your emotions to, to seal what it is that God is doing in your heart and in your mind right now. It's a good exercise. How does that make you feel when you hear this? Precious. Special. special I, I just hybridized those two words. You notice that? Specious. Special and precious. The peak of efficiency. God is for me, not against me. I love that one. Anyone else? Appreciated. Appreciated. What was the other one? Valued. Yes, 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 yes. 
personal. So this implies that someone wants you, someone values you. Guys, this is what you're supposed to feel like every seven days. God knew we're going to get on this hamster wheel of life. We're going to get beat down. We're going to spend six days of our life trying to prove to God, to myself, to my parents, to my gym coach who never believed in me that I'm worth something. And the Sabbath comes along and tells you, knock that off. Stop that foolishness. You're already worth something. And rest in that reality. Amen? The entire purpose of the Sabbath is to give you a weekly reminder of this, that your life matters, that you have significance in this world, that you're the object of a divine love and unending love. And this precious gift of rest is available to every human being. Even after the fall, we have access to this level of fellowship with God. We can't have face-to-face fellowship, but we can have heart-to-heart fellowship. Amen? Totally available to us. Man, I got a time thing here, but I really want to go in on this. So I'm going to do my best to be a good boy while also feeding the flesh. (laughs) This is one of the reasons why I'm not a naturalist. This very thing that we're talking about is one of the chiefest reasons why I am not a naturalist, why I'm not an atheist. And the interesting thing is, by the way, do you know what the original manuscript was called of Charles Darwin's The Origin of the Species? It's the origin of species by means of natural selection preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. It's ironic to me that there are movements in the world today claiming to stand up for injustices in the world while also cherishing a worldview that is largely steeped in racism. Atheism and advocacy and fighting for injustice can't actually be on the same page because you don't matter in the first place. How can you claim that black lives matter or blue lives matter when you don't believe that your own life matters in the eyes of God? Are you with me this evening? God has communicated intrinsic moral value to human beings. And guys, every single one of us, atheist or non-atheist, all of us really want to matter. We want someone to love us and to care about us and for our life to have significance. Atheism is not really livable. Suicide is the only viable option in in the philosophical following through the thoughts. Like, if I don't really matter and no one cares, why am I still here? Why do I even bother? Not that I'm advocating for suicide, by the way. I'm advocating for eternal life in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? But the point is, this is the only worldview available to man that truly fills the deepest desires of your heart, that you do matter. You are valued. You are desired. There's a purpose for your life. You're the only you available to the world and live out that calling to the glory of God. Amen? Right? You are not a mistake, beloved. You're not some fluke of nature, some product of many fortunate circumstances for few and many unfortunate circumstances for many. That is not you. That is absolutely not you. And the Sabbath comes along and tells us what we really want to hear, that your life does have significance, that you do matter, that you are important, that you are loved, that you were handcrafted by a God of love. There is no one like you in this world. You're the only you, not just available to the world, but even to God. And how you live your life matters, and only you can do what you do for the glory of God. This is what the Sabbath can speak into. And we're reminded of this weekly. And you know why? Because we're so prone to forget it. And there's an accuser of the brethren who tells you that you don't matter, that you came from monkeys. And when it's all said and done, no one cares and it's all a waste. So do you and get yours because that's all that there is. That's not a desirable life, beloved. 
It is not. All of us deeply want to matter. We deeply want to be loved and accepted. And in the seventh day Sabbath, it is communicated to you weekly. Everything that you wished was true is true and more so. Amen? So in Exodus chapter 20, we're given the Sabbath commandment to remember the Sabbath day. What Sabbath day? This precious gift that communicates your value. Don't forget about that because it's going to be a blessing to you and it's going to see you through those darkest moments of your life. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your strangers within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. This is not the first mention of the Sabbath in the Bible. It's calling us to remember what the first mention tells you about yourself, how important you are, how valuable you are, and what's going to keep you sane in a difficult and challenging world. But what is the reason? Why is it that God gave us the Sabbath according to this verse, particularly the verse 11? Why did God give us the Sabbath according to this verse? So for in six days, God made. It's a memorial of creation, right? It's another way we could say this, right? We're to keep the Sabbath as a memorial of the fact that we did not create ourselves. But it's not just a memorial of creation at large. It's a memorial of your creation. That you individually were brought into existence on this earth for a purpose. That you matter that your life is filled with potential for good. I've got a good friend of mine who was brought into the world because his mother was violated by his, his, her husband's like best friend. So he was the product of rape. He's a minister of the gospel today, preaching hope into countless lives, creating programming to be a blessing to many other people's lives. Do we wish for bad things to happen in this world? Absolutely not. But no one is on this earth by mistake. Are you hearing me today? I don't care what the story is. If it was a hookup and dad, you've never met your dad, whatever the circumstances may be, there's a God in heaven, your true father, who believes in you, who has plans for you, who wants you to thrive and to prosper no matter what it was that led to you being here. You do still matter. It's a memorial of the fact that someone wanted you to be here, hence your current existence. And it's an opportunity to partake of the grandeur and beauty of what God has done. So God has given us this to remind us that we are loved. I was made with a purpose. So the Sabbath is a great day to partake in the beauty of what God has made and to worship Him as the Creator. But again, it's also a time to worship Him for the fact that He is your Creator. He made me. I'm not my own. I should slow down, pump the brakes, and take care of this body that He's given me. To not be so filled with the cares of this world that I forget the fact that I'm special and the object of God's divine love. To not be so busy trying to prove myself and my worth to the world around me and to receive and rest in the worth that I already have in Christ. And that there's an amazing God in heaven who longs to have time with me. That's the first reason we're given as a memorial of the Sabbath. It's a memorial of creation. It's a memorial of the fact that we did not create ourselves. That's the first one. There's a second memorial. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. It says, to observe the Sabbath day, this is a repeating of the Ten Commandments, but the wording is slightly different. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who's within your gates. And why is that? God also wants them to have the dignity of rest. And there's a profound truth and message in this. There's a, when I went to Bible college, one of the teachers there preached this sermon called Truly Human that changed my life. It was such a powerful message. He's actually one of the teachers for our program, Nathan Renner. But God wanted to ensure that His people didn't rob other people of their dignity by making them work for them on Sabbath. You may have servants in your household in this old uh, economy of Israel who don't believe what you believe, who are just hired hands. And God says, hey, even let them have rest. Let them keep their dignity by not having to work for you. Whether they believe in the sanctity of the Sabbath or not. So when we make people work for us on Sabbath, we rob them of their dignity and we end up treating them worse than God intended that we treat livestock. If God didn't want your donkey working for you on Sabbath, I assure you He doesn't want others working for you on Sabbath. It's robbing them of their humanity. It's robbing them of their dignity. Now, they may not know any better, right? They may continue to work and do what they do in their service industry or so forth, but you can keep them from working for you. Are you with me tonight? You can keep them from working for you and allow them to walk in the dignity, right, that God would have for them by not working for people who do know better, right? They may not know better, but you do. But he continues in verse 15, And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Why is it that God tells us to keep the Sabbath, or why is it that He gave us the Sabbath according to this verse? Verse 15. To remind us that He's our Savior, right? That we didn't redeem ourselves, right? So it's a memorial of redemption that we can't save ourselves. Amen? Amen. We do not believe that man can save themselves by their good deeds or any meritorious acts that they do in human flesh. We do not believe that and will not believe that. The New Testament alludes to Egyptian bondage and that it's a type of our bondage to sin. Our only hope of salvation is in the accomplished, finished work of Jesus. Not our works, not our Sabbath observance, not our lifting up the sanctity of the law. That is not where our salvation is found. It is always, only, ever in Jesus. Amen? Amen. And when we Sabbath, we are resting in the accomplished, redemptive work of Jesus. We are not Sabbathing to be saved. We're Sabbathing because we are saved. Amen? You see the difference? We can't create ourselves and we can't redeem ourselves. This is us entering into true and complete rest in Christ. We're spending a day to acknowledge that, to enjoy that, and to reflect upon that. We would do well to reflect upon these things and not just attend church. It's possible to do Sabbath without truly observing Sabbath. You know that, right? Just because you wear the right clothes and go to the right building on that day doesn't mean that we truly have entered into and reflected upon the rest that's available to us in Christ. 
Sabbath is a day to reflect upon the fact that we didn't create ourselves, we can't save ourselves, and sharing this beautiful truth with others to loose their burdens and to bring rest to their souls. What a great day to share this beautiful message with others. It reminds me of John chapter 5 and verse 18. Jesus heals a man who was paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. He heals the guy, and of all days, on the Sabbath. In fact, there are seven Sabbath miracles in the Gospel of John. Jesus is doing something significant on the Sabbath, seven different times. But in this scenario, in John chapter 5 and verse 18, Jesus has healed the guy on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders of his day are furious because they view healing as an act of work on Sabbath and as a violation of the law. How many people in this room have a beef with that, of that interpretation of the Ten Commandments, and particularly the Sabbath commandment? I can't heal people on Sabbath because it's a violation of law. Anybody else have an issue with that? Yeah, Jesus would be raising his hand right now if he were in this room, right? What better day to heal people than on the Sabbath to provide rest for their weary souls, right? Living with infirmities and weakness and brokenness and issues, what better day to lighten their load? The problem was that Jews had created 39 Sabbath laws that had nothing to do with the Bible. Because here's the issue. They got a whooping for disobedience, right? They got carted off to Babylon for disobedience. They were ruled by the Medo-Persians. They were ruled by the Greeks. They were oppressed by the Romans. And they finally caught on to the fact that every time we disobey, we get a whooping. So maybe we should stop disobeying. And the only way they in their human, carnal, simple minds figured that they could get out of this problem was to build a fence around the law itself. And so they built a fence of man-made laws and regulations. And if I can't even get past these, I certainly won't violate that one. And then I won't get a whooping. That's legalism, right? And some people think that legalism is a raising of the standards. It's not. It's actually a lowering of the standards so that man can reach it. Legalism is not what God wants. Legalism is not what we are promoting tonight. We are promoting resting in Jesus' accomplished work, not doing works to get Jesus to notice us or to favor us. So they created 39 Sabbath laws. You couldn't sow or plow or reap. In fact, you couldn't spit on the ground because that would be plowing, right? You couldn't thresh. You couldn't bake. You couldn't clean anything. You couldn't comb anything. Sorry, ladies. It's going to be a bad hair day every Sabbath. You couldn't spin anything. You couldn't stretch thread. You couldn't make loops. Can't tie your shoes. Need those Velcro shoes, right? Or some nice flats. Uh, You couldn't tie a knot or untie a knot. You couldn't tear anything. You couldn't, well, anyway, all kinds of craziness, right? Couldn't extinguish a fire or kindle a fire or put the finishing touch on anything. Now, none of this is in the Bible, But they had made these laws to try to protect the Sabbath. So when this young hotshot rabbi comes into town, healing folk on the Sabbath, they think, "Uh, excuse you, have you not seen our laws? And Jesus is perpetually frustrated with the religious establishment of his day. You guys missed the entire point. You're going to pull one of your donkeys out of a hole in a ditch when it falls on the Sabbath, but you got beef with me because I heal a man on the Sabbath? You have missed the point, fellas. Everything about the law of God was for the uplifting of humanity and ease their burdens and to bless them, not to oppress them and make them miserable. They missed the point. But here's the thing. So they're really upset about Jesus healing this guy, and they want to kill him. They literally want to kill Jesus for truly keeping Sabbath. But that's not how they saw it. 
So it says, therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, does anyone here truly believe that Jesus broke the Sabbath, that Jesus broke the law of God? No. Here's the ironic thing. The word used here for broke is the word luo in the Greek. And this is the only time in the New Testament where that word luo is translated broke. Every other time it's translated loose or untie. But for whatever reason, the translators thought, well, certainly that can't be what it's talking about with the Sabbath here. It must be saying that they thought Jesus broke the Sabbath. That's not what's being said here. The original language plays more true. So that means that the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to kill Jesus because he loosed the Sabbath. Because he set the Sabbath free from the tyrannical and oppressive principles that they had surrounded it with. Are you understanding? They were upset that Jesus was setting their Sabbath free when it wasn't theirs to begin with. In fact, they had emasculated the Sabbath largely of the blessing it was meant to be for humanity. And Jesus wanted people to know that's not what this is about. It's not about restrictions. It's about liberation. The Sabbath is liberating, not restricting. Amen? All right, here's the third reason why the Sabbath is a memorial. It's a memorial of creation, it's a memorial of redemption, and it's a memorial of one more thing. Probably more than this, but we're just going to do three for tonight. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, it says, Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them, who sets them apart for a holy purpose, who transforms them. Right? We talked about this in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Are We in This Alone? That the Holy Spirit convicts, confirms, but also conforms, transforms us into the character of God, right? Transforms our characters. And so the Sabbath is a sign that God is the one who's promised to transform us and set us free from the burden of sin. Amen? And Ezekiel 36 gives us this picture. We talked about this before, uh, how God has promised to remove the heart of stone from our flesh and to give us a heart of flesh to put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his statutes and his judgments to do them. Okay? So God is taking responsibility to ensure that his people overcome and are transformed through the rest of Ezekiel 36. We dealt with that two nights ago or two messages ago. So the Sabbath is also a reminder to us to stop getting so anxious over whether I'll be good enough or be able to change. God is promising to empower us to overcome through the power of His Spirit, and we should reflect upon that and rest in that. Sabbathing is our act of protest against the lies of Satan and his ideology that man can save himself and that God is selfish. Do you ever think about that? Sabbathing is our act of protest that man cannot save himself, that God is the one that will transform me, and that God is not selfish. God is deeply interested in uplifting me today. Nothing about this sounds like legalism, does it? Does it? No. <laughs> we don't Sabbath to be saved. We Sabbath to rest in the fact that we are already saved and being transformed by His grace. Amen? Listen to this. It's from a book called The Everlasting Covenant. Keeping the Sabbath is not a duty to be discharged in order to obtain the favor of God, but the keeping of the faith by which righteousness is accounted to us. Right? Living in harmony with Jesus' righteous life that's put over the top of ours. He says, There is no room for the objection that we ought not to keep the seventh-day Sabbath because we're not saved by works, because the Sabbath is not a work. It is a rest. God's rest. 
He that has entered into his rest hath also ceased from his own works as God did from his, Hebrews 4.10. True Sabbath keeping is not justification by works, and it's utterly disconnected from any idea of such a thing. It is, on the contrary, justification by faith. It is the absolute rest that comes from perfect faith in the power of God to create a new man and to keep the soul from falling into sin. Don't you love that? So we've dealt with the why and the when of the Sabbath. It's the seventh day of the week. We dealt with that. We'll come back to that just for a brief moment. But I briefly want to cover Jesus and his relation to the Sabbath, and then we'll kind of transition to some other points. But are you with me so far? Okay, the Sabbath is a memorial of the fact that we didn't create ourselves, we can't redeem ourselves, and that we can't even transform ourselves. We are utterly dependent upon the accomplished work of Jesus. Okay? And that the Sabbath communicates our value. It tells you that you're here for a reason and to rest in that reality. So in Genesis chapter 1, we saw this already earlier, that the Sabbath was created by God. But John chapter 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. How many things were made through Him? All things. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. Well, who is this Word? Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who's that talking about? Jesus. So the Bible says this very, something very similar in Colossians chapter 1, that Jesus is the very creator who made the Sabbath in the beginning. We're going to follow Jesus in the history of the Sabbath throughout the scriptures. So Jesus created it in the beginning. We got it so far? That's the first instance. Then we see Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. We've already read those verses, the Sabbath commandment. Jesus commanded this at Mount Sinai. Okay, Jesus interacting with the people of God did so at Mount Sinai. If anybody have any objections to this, how do you know that's Jesus? Whenever Moses was engaging with God in the wilderness, when he first was given a calling, Moses says, well, who do I say sent me when I go tell these people to let my people go in Egypt? And he says, tell them, I am that I am sent you. And then Jesus in the New Testament, when he's having this, this back and forth with the Pharisees, They said, well, how do you even know who Abraham was? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And then they pick up stones to stone Jesus. Why? Because they know what Jesus is saying, that he's the very God that was corresponding with Moses in the Old Testament. And they felt that is blasphemous. No way, Jose. They were not about that life. But Jesus is claiming to be the very God that corresponded with Moses in the Old Testament in the Gospels. And we see it here in Exodus chapter 20. Okay? Uh, This is actually Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, not Ezekiel 20, verse 11. But anyway, so Jesus created the Sabbath in the beginning. He commanded it at Mount Sinai. Then we get to Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. It says, So Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So Jesus, the third thing we see here is that Jesus kept it in his flesh. He He created it in the beginning. He commanded it at Mount Sinai, and Jesus himself kept the Sabbath in his flesh. Now, some people may protest and say, well, yeah, Jesus did that because Jesus was a Jew. I'm so glad you said that because I have something to say about that. You didn't, but anyway. Okay. There were many Jewish things that Jesus did not do just because they were Jewish. For instance, Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 touched a leper. Did Jews do that? No. No. Jesus associated with Samaritans in John chapter 4. It says that Jesus, John chapter 4 and verse 4, that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. 
Do, do Jews need to go through Samaria and talk to Samaritans? No. When the ceremonial hand-washing was going on, well, the Pharisees and Sadducees had a beef with Jesus and his disciples because they say, you guys don't wash before you eat. And this is not talking about what your mom said. You should wash your hands before you eat. Amen? I've traveled a lot in my life, and I, I, am, I shudder to think of how many people I've seen not wash their hands in the restroom. It's gross. Please, O oh Lord Jesus, speak to these souls and change their hearts. Amen? <laughs> anyway. Um, but that's not what they were talking about in this circumstance. They did a ceremonial hand washing. They would pour water into the palms of their hands and they would do this and then do this. And you know what they would do if they didn't have water? They would do this and they would do this. Yes, that's ridiculous. That's what they did. But Jesus didn't do their ceremonial hand washing, even though Jews technically should in their eyes. Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. We've already talked about the fact they wanted to kill a brother for doing so. So Jesus didn't just do what he did because Jews do them. He did what he chose to do to live a life that honored God. Do you understand the difference? Yes. And he knew that keeping Sabbath not only honored God, but that really it's not so much about the fact that we are keeping Sabbath. It's about the fact that the Sabbath is what keeps us. Are you with me this evening? God gave the Sabbath as a gift to keep us, not us to keep the Sabbath, right? All right, it, it is something that's given to us, obviously, that's an observance, it's a blessing, but he gave it to be what keeps and preserves and, and helps us in the midst of the vicissitudes of life. All right, then we get to Luke chapter 23. So Jesus commanded this, he, he created the Sabbath in the beginning, commanded it at Mount Sinai, and he kept it in his flesh. Then we get to Luke chapter 23. Then they, they took Jesus' body down from the cross, they wrapped it in linen, and they laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with them from Galilee followed after. And they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oil. And then what did they do? They rested on the Sabbath. Why? According to the commandment. Now, do you think Jesus deserved a proper burial? Yes or no? Do you think they longed to give him a proper burial? Yes or no? But did they do it? Why? Because they wanted to honor the Sabbath. They knew one of the ways to honor Jesus in his death was to honor the Sabbath that he would have honored if he were still alive. You understanding? So they didn't finish his proper burial until the next day. Kind of a moot point at that stage. Amen? Because that tomb was empty by God's grace. Okay? Then we get to Luke chapter 24, continuing that narrative into the next chapter, beginning of verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they had found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in, and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And say hallelujah tonight. I am so thankful that tomb is empty. Jesus kept the Sabbath in his death. Even in his death. What day does he die? We call it good. Friday. Friday, He dies. They take his body down before the sun sets. They put him in a tomb. And Jesus bursts through that tomb on what day? On Sunday. Jesus literally kept the Sabbath in his death. In the same way that he rested from the creation in the book of Genesis, he also rests from his act of recreation in the Gospels. Amen? Amen. Jesus rests from his completed work of salvation in the tomb. So he kept it in his death, and his disciples, again, don't give him a proper burial until the Sabbath is over in obedience to the commandment. Okay? So he 
created it in the beginning, commanded it at Mount Sinai, he kept it in his flesh, and he kept it in his death. Then we get to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 20. When Jesus is talking about the signs of the times, well, it was kind of a unique scenario. The disciples, as Jesus is walking out of the temple, he, he tells them, they say, oh, they're trying to cheer Jesus up. He's bummed because the Jews have, have rejected him. They don't want to follow him. And he's making this point that there's not going to be one stone left upon another in this temple. Because the, the, the disciples try to cheer him up and say, well, look, Jesus, isn't the temple pretty? And he says, look, fellas, not one of those stones is going to be left upon another. And that's like talking about a Jew's mama. Like when you talk about the temple, you might as well be insulting their mother. You don't play with the temple. You don't mess around here. It's a sacred place. It's a very important place to them. So they're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. And the only time they envision that that could happen would be at the end of the world. So they say, well, when are these things going to be and where are going to be the signs of your coming? Because they thought they were the same event, but they're not. The destruction of the temple that will happen in AD 70 and the second coming are two totally different events. But Jesus is amazing, and he answers both questions, because they're two separate questions technically, with the same answer. He answers both questions with the same answer, and one of the things, and he starts giving the signs of the times and so forth, but one of the things that he tells them is that to pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. So pray that you don't have to flee and to run, because first of all, being homeless in the winter is difficult. I've been there. It's not easy. Right? And being homeless or having to flee on the Sabbath, that's a day of celebration and jubilation, that's not going to be easy for a Jew either. Right? A day that's supposed to be celebrating, but you're fleeing for your life. So Jesus says, pray that when this happens, that you don't have to flee in the winter or on the Sabbath. So Jesus is saying this in AD 31. Okay, he's going to die in AD 31. So when he says this, he's expecting that 39 years later, in AD 70, when Jerusalem's destroyed, that the disciples would still be keeping Sabbath, right? If he's telling them, pray that your flight may not be in winter on the Sabbath, he's assuming that when that time comes, 39 years after he's verbalizing this, they're still going to be keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. That's what he's implying. And he's also implying that his true followers will be keeping Sabbath preceding the second coming. Are you with me in that? He's expecting that they will still be keeping Sabbath, the same Sabbath they were keeping at this stage, the seventh-day Sabbath, okay? So he he creates it in the beginning, commanded at Mount Sinai. He keeps it in his flesh. He keeps it in his death. He expects his true followers to be keeping Sabbath 39 years after his death and even at the second coming, all the way up to the second coming. Then we get to Acts chapter 13, and the Apostle Paul is traveling, doing missionary work, and it says this, Acts chapter 13, beginning of verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now this is dangerous, because if you ask a preacher if they want to preach, what are they going to do? Preach. Right? So he stands up to preach, and this is part of what he says in his sermon, skipping down to verse 37. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Paul is preaching the message of righteousness by faith. You're not saved by keeping the law of Moses. You're saved by the death of Jesus. Okay? Then get down to verse 42. 
So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And when uh, the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath, almost a whole city came together to hear the word of God. Now, here's the amazing thing. Do Jews have a tie, an emotional and cultural tie to the Sabbath that's totally separate from the law? Yes or no? Yes. Right? Like, this is a part of my heritage. It's not just something I believe from a moral code. Right? But do Gentiles have that? No, there's no connection for them whatsoever. Now, if it's true, as some people say it is, that Paul implies that Sunday is the day that we keep, or it doesn't even matter what day you keep, and many people say that in the Christian church today, unfortunately. Now, I don't see that in the text of Scripture. We've not even, it's nowhere from what we've been looking at tonight. But let's just say that that's the case. If that is the case, then what, these people say, hey, can you preach this message to us next Sabbath? These are Gentiles. If the day really had changed to Sunday, Paul could tell these Gentiles, hey, you don't have to wait until next week. Just come tomorrow. The day changed. We now keep Sunday as a memorial of the resurrection of Jesus. This is the new day. Come tomorrow. And there's not going to be clapback from them because they're not Jews. But does Paul do that? No. No, they come back next Sabbath and they keep Sabbath. Jews and Gentiles alike based upon the teachings and example of Paul. Did you hear me? The entire town, Jew and Gentile alike, are keeping Sabbath based upon the teachings and example of the Apostle Paul. That cannot be overlooked. Okay? So Jesus commands us. He creates the Sabbath in the beginning. He commands it at Mount Sinai. He keeps it in his flesh. He keeps it in his death. He expects his disciples to be keeping it 39 years after his death. By the way, his disciples also kept it in his death. They didn't give him a proper burial. He still expects his people to be keeping it, preceding the second coming. And Jews and Gentiles alike are worshiping on Sabbath based upon Jesus' teaching and example and the Apostle Paul's teaching and example. I think that's important, beloved. Lastly, in Isaiah chapter 66, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain, verse 23, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me. In Isaiah, a prophecy is given that in the new heavens and the new earth, all the people of God will be keeping Sabbath in the new heavens and the new earth. Lastly, in review, He creates it in the beginning. He commanded him out Sinai. He kept it in his flesh. He kept it in his death, and so did his disciples in his death. He expected the disciples to be keeping it 39 years after his death and even preceding the second coming. Paul is preaching on the Sabbath to Jews and Gentiles alike who are worshiping together according to Paul's teaching and example, and Jesus' teaching and example. And lastly, in the new heaven and the new earth, the seventh-day Sabbath is going to be kept by all of God's people forever. Amen? Amen. From Genesis to Revelation, the seventh-day Sabbath is the only option for true observance and worship of God. That's it. Genesis to Revelation, we've walked through the big picture. Ironically, in 108 languages around the world, the name they use for the seventh day of the week is the word Sabbath. In 108 languages in, in the world. Okay? 108 different languages. Somebody speaks Spanish in this room. What do you call the seventh day? Sabado. Sabado. Right? And so forth. All right. 
So what went wrong? In AD 321, the Emperor Constantine had an issue. He realized that it would be advantageous to get the Christians and the other citizens of his kingdom united because there's difficulties going on. And the easiest way to do this, the most advantageous way, is for him to profess a, a, a form of religious revival and coming together. And he makes an edict to, that says this, On the venerable day of the sun, that Sunday, let the magistrates and the people residing in the cities rest and let all workshops be closed. In the country, however, persons engaged in agriculture may freely and lawfully continue their pursuits. So Constantine makes an edict basically as a law that people should be keeping Sunday as a day of rest. Okay? And he's trying to do this to unite people. And eventually what happens is this idea, well, look, Jesus was resurrected on Sunday and pagans are already worshiping the sun. Right? This is something that was common practice in their day. In fact, this is um, one of the coins they had during the time of AD 312. It says, Soli Invicto Comedi, which is the invisible companion of the sun. Right? There were pagan sun worshipers, many during that time. You can bring the two together. People who worship the sun and people who worship the S-O-N, who was raised on sun. Why don't we just put the two together and it's going to make life a lot easier. And this is eventually how that process began, and the church continued these teachings. Listen to this. This is from Dr. W.D. Killen in his book, The Ancient Church. Between the days of the apostles and the conversion of Constantine, rites and ceremonies of which neither Paul nor Peter ever heard crept silently into use and then claimed the rank of divine institutions. Do you see what he's saying here? Things that Peter and Paul didn't believe eventually got baptized into the Christian church and claimed divine rights, but the Bible never gave it. And because it's been around for so long and the church has done so, tradition trumps the Word of God. You noticing that? We've been doing this for so long, this is why. Okay? Listen to this. This is from the Catholic Encyclopedia. The church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath of the seventh day of the week to the first, that's a typo, sorry, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day. Two things here. First of all, the church is absolutely claiming from their own mouth, we changed it. We changed the day from Saturday to Sunday. We were involved in that process. That was us. And second of all, we need to know this part, that they call it the third commandment. The Sabbath is a fourth commandment. We talked about this last night. In Daniel chapter 7, and verse 25, it says that the little horn power will seek to change times and laws. And we mentioned the fact that they removed the second commandment, the one involving idols, and moved everything up one. So the fourth became the third. The fifth became the fourth. The sixth became the fifth, and so forth. You see that? Okay, this is all corroborating what we've already mentioned. But we only talked about one of the commandments last night, the one on idolatry. They also have changed the seventh-day Sabbath, which very interestingly is the only law that deals with time. Do you see that? He shall seek to change times and laws, Daniel 7.25, if you want to write that down. He shall seek to change times and laws. He changed the second commandment, right? This power changed the second commandment, but it also changed the only law that has to do with time. Okay, this is from the American Catholic Quarterly Review, January 1883. Protestantism and discarding the authority of the church has no good reason for its Sunday theory, and it ought logically, I misspelled that too, I was, I was typing these from notes into the slides right before this evening started, my apologies, I'll fix these later. But it says, and it ought logically to keep Saturday with the Jews. 
Okay, they ought to keep Saturday with the Jews. So the Catholic Church is making a bold statement here that if you're really going to be Protestants and you're protesting the authority of Rome, then why are you keeping our day? You can't claim to be Protestants when you're honoring a day that has no scriptural background. The only reason it is happening is because of our authority that was used to do it. Does that make sense? It's a compelling argument. It's an absolutely compelling argument. This is from Catholicism and Fundamentalism, page 38. Fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there's no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath or day of rest was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. This is from the book Faith of Our Fathers, uh, page 561 by Cardinal James Gibbons. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. As you can tell when I type fast, I can't spell the word the. Um, I apologize. I was under a time crunch tonight. I added these last minute because I felt they could be helpful. I'm sorry to Cardinal James Gibbons, who's probably dead by now, but I'm still sorry. And I'm sorry to you. Okay. This is from W.E. Gladstone from his book, Ladder Gleanings. He's from the Church of England. Okay, so now these are statements from other Protestant churches, okay, making similar allusions. The seventh day of the week has been deposed from its title to obligatory religious observance, and its prerogative has been carried to the first, under no direct precept of Scripture. This is not someone from my church, beloved, but this is a Protestant theologian. This is from Amos Biney, a Methodist. It is true that there's no positive command for infant baptism, nor is there any for keeping holy the first day of the week. Many believe that Christ changed the Sabbath, but from his own words, we see that he came for no such purpose. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy the law, but to upbuild it, right? Um, To put away with the law, but to establish it. But from his own words, we see that he came for no such purpose. Those who believe that Christ changed the Sabbath base it only on a supposition. He's a Methodist. Okay, this is from Dr. E.T. Hiscox, a Baptist. To me, it seems unaccountable that Jesus, during his three years discussion with his disciples, often conversing with them upon the Sabbath question, discussing it in some of its various aspects, freeing it from false glosses, never alluded to any transference of the day. This is a brilliant point, isn't it? The fact that Jesus was loosing the Sabbath in John chapter 5 gave him full license to say, hey, by the way, the day is going to change. Get ready. Those words never come out of the mouth of Jesus, not once, and not in the 40 days after his resurrection either. They are never uttered from the mouth of Jesus. Why? Because he never intended it to change. He continues, also, here he says, also during those 40 days of his resurrection, no such thing was intimated, nor yet did the inspired apostles in preaching the gospel, founding churches, counseling and instructing those founded, discuss or approach the subject. Scripture is silent on the matter. This is from John Theodore Mueller. He's a Lutheran. But they err in teaching that Sunday has taken the place of the Old Testament Sabbath and therefore must be kept as the seventh day had to be kept by the children of Israel. These churches err in their teaching, for Scripture has in no way ordained that the first day of the week in the place of the Sabbath. Okay? This is from Dwight's Theology, Volume 4, page 401. This is from the Presbyterians. The Christian Sabbath, Sunday, is not in the Scripture and was not by the primitive church called the Sabbath. That's the early church, the apostles. Okay, This is from J.I. Packer. He's a well-respected theologian in the evangelical circles. He says, this seems the natural reading of the scanty evidence, the sparse evidence. 
Other Christians continue the Saturday Sabbath, denying that a change has been made. While many, seeing that the commanded rest was typical of a rest of faith in Christ, conclude that like other Old Testament types, this commandment is now abolished. But then he says, Then the reason for keeping the Lord's Day Sunday is the church's traditional practice rather than God's direct command. We've talked about the fact that the Sabbath is a memorial of rest, but it's a memorial of rest we have in Jesus in His accomplished work on the seventh day. Yeah? yeah. That's what we're told throughout Scripture. Now, this, this is new for many of you this evening, and I understand that. And it's a lot to kind of take in because all the, most of us, what we've grown up with is Sunday is the day, and that's like a Jewish thing, but we're not Jews, and we don't do that type of thing. And some people may even say, you know, that Sabbath is this old covenant rite, but we know that that's not the issue of the covenants because we just addressed that two messages ago. And the covenants are not getting away from the law or getting rid of the law. It becomes more of your experience by writing it on your heart and in your mind. And the only Sabbath that's listed in the Old and New Covenant, because it's the same law, the Ten Commandments, is the seventh day. It's the seventh day. It's the only option that you have. New Covenant Christians will keep the seventh day Sabbath. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible teaches and portrays. So I have my own story in this, and we'll talk about my story next weekend. In fact, next Sabbath morning, we're actually going to have a slot um, where I'll tell you my testimony. You can kind of hear some of my background and my story. I did not grow up believing these things. I was 21 years old when I first came into access to these teachings, and I remember thinking to myself, I've never heard that before, but that's what the text says. And never heard that before, but, but that's what the text says. And the more that I studied, the more I became convicted, but I also realized there's a cost here. And maybe some of you are thinking that thing right now, like, man, like, like what you're saying, and I hope this is the case, I see it in the text. I hope that's true. Do you see that from the text? Yeah. Okay. But like, what's this going to look like? I've got jobs. I've got commitments. My kids have sports programs. There's a lot of questions going through your mind right now, and God understands that. And I trust and fully believe that God will take you on a journey just like He did with me. I had to pray through this. I had to count the cost. And I had to eventually get to a point where I had to ask an honest question myself. In fact, I didn't even have the courage to ask that question. Thankfully, my father did. My dad came up to me around Thanksgiving time in 2007 and said, because he, he and I had both had been watching some television programming that were teaching these things. And we realized, like, man... I've never heard that before, but that's straight from the Bible. This isn't, this isn't some guy's opinion. Like, this guy keeps going to the Bible like you and I are doing every time that we're together. And we realize, like, that's what the text says. And so my dad realized that I was kind of wavering. Like, I was intellectually convinced, but I wasn't making any commitments. And my dad came up to me one day. I was working in retail at this stage, in management. I'd just gotten promoted to an assistant manager working at Finish Line, an athletic apparel company. And it's right before Thanksgiving. Is that a busy time for shoppers and in retail? What do you think? And my dad comes up to me. My dad used to work in retail for years. And my dad said, buddy, this Sabbath thing's either true or it's not. What are you going to do? And I knew he was right, and I needed, I needed that nudge. Some of us need that. And I realized that this is true, and i got to make a choice. And I struggled with that choice initially, but I tell you what, beloved, when I chose to make a full and firm decision for Jesus and to stand on the side of truth, not knowing what my future would look like, you know what I found? God was peace, yes, first of all. And second of all, God was faithful to provide for me. 
Beloved, if he can create a universe out of nothing, do you really think God's going to leave you for dead when you choose to honor him over man? No. Absolutely not. It may not look the way you want it to look. There may be difficult seasons before that, that provision comes around, but I promise you this, God will never leave you nor forsake you. God will not fail you, and God will fight for those who fight for him. I know that with all of my being, beloved. I guarantee you this. I don't know what it's going to look like in your story. Some of us are going to have even better jobs. We're going to have understanding parents. And some of us may have a situation where we've got to put our foot in the Jordan and just take that step. And we're going to find that God opens a way. Others of us, it's going to look different. But the point is, no matter what your journey looks like, there's a faithful God who is holding your hand and will honor those who honor Him. Amen? Amen. God will do that. As Hannah comes up to sing our song, I want you to grab your decision cards. And um, these are the things that we're thinking about as we fill out these cards. Number one, I recognize, I'm understanding tonight from what you've been teaching, that the seventh day is the Bible Sabbath. Okay, that's number one. I recognize, I, I understand intellectually, I get that what you're saying is the seventh day is the Bible Sabbath. Number two is that I want to commit to keeping that Bible Sabbath. So the first is that I understand that this teaching is biblical. The second, and you can check both boxes, wherever you are in your life right now, whatever your story is, but these are two separate top, two separate answers, just so you understand. The second is I want to actually keep this Sabbath. I want to do that. I want to move forward by faith and keep the Bible Sabbath. Number three, I want to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Number four, I have a question. And if you have questions, we want to answer those. We want to follow up with you tonight. Number five, I have a prayer request. I I need you to pray for me, okay? Numbers three, four, and five are usually the same each night. But tonight, number one, I understand that this is a biblical teaching. Number two, I want to make a decision based upon what I've heard. As you're thinking about this, I want to invite Hannah to come up and sing for us this beautiful, beautiful song. And then I'll come up and close in prayer, okay? Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. I believe you've spoken to us, and I pray that as we reflect upon what we've heard tonight, that we would go home, uh, that we'd look through the handouts and study for ourselves and see that this is indeed your will for humanity, not just it's something you want us to do, but Lord, that this is communicating who we are to you and that we're resting in the accomplished and finished work of Jesus. So I pray that you would speak to us, that you would bless us, that you'd give us courage to surrender to you and say yes to this call that you have on our lives and that you would guide us, Lord, in what the next step is to be. So we love you and we thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.